Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest in this program is historian Simon Hall, author of 1956, The World in Revolt, a book which follows the upheavals of one momentous year. 1956 was a year which saw landmark struggles and achievements for the civil rights movement in the US. Rosa Parks had taken her momentous stand over segregated buses in Montgomery, Alabama, in December 1955, and this would lead to an organised bus boycott in early 1956. It was also the year of Nikita Khrushchev's so-called secret speech repudiating Stalinism, and of growing dissent in Eastern Europe, culminating in the uprising in Hungary, harshly repressed by Soviet forces. 1956 also saw resistance to colonial powers in Cyprus, Algeria and Egypt. The Suez Crisis was one of a number of events that year, after which the world could never be the same again. 56 was also the year in which black women in South Africa organised their resistance against the restrictions of the apartheid regime's past laws. It was the year of angry young men in a theatre, of the birth of rock and roll, and of the world's first shopping mall. Clearly, change was in the air. When I met Simon recently, I began by asking him if in part his aim was to rescue the 50s from the long shadow of the 1960s, which captures so much of the attention as the decade of change. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think they've often been seen as a sort of an in-between decade, uh, in-between the drama of the Great Depression and the Second World War on the one hand and the, and the 60s protest movements and counterculture on the other. But I think that the 50s are fascinating and I think they're fascinating for lots of reasons. But for me, it's this tension or this contradiction or this juxtaposition of on the one hand as a kind of uh, narrative around austerity, around conformism, around consensus. And on the other hand, there are all these things which are happening which are pushing back against that. Uh, there's the literature of the beats, there's the emergence of rock and roll, there are tensions around race uh, and the rise of the civil rights movement. And so you can see in the 50s the beginnings of this countercultural protest turn that, that the 60s are famous for, but they're there operating alongside this kind of more dull and dreary conformity of the 50s. And the fact that these things are operating together, often in, this, in the same context, I think is fascinating. And of course, civil rights and various forms of protest and, and resistance predated 1956. But is it your contention that things really took a, a step change in 1956? Things which were latent and beginning to develop shifted up a gear? Yeah, I think you see that particularly clearly with the, with the civil rights movement in the United States, because if you look at the Montgomery bus boycott, which, which actually starts in December of 1955, it, it starts out as an attempt to secure a kind of a more humane system of segregation on Montgomery's buses. They don't start out uh, with uh, an initial aim of getting rid of segregation. That comes at the end of January of 1956. Uh, and that's partly because the attempt to kind of have a more polite version of segregation has come up against total implacability of the segregationists, of the white politicians in charge. And so what you see, what you see through 1956 is on the one hand an increasing determination of African Americans to demand full equality and full citizenship, uh, and in Montgomery to demand a, a total end to segregation on the buses. And on, on the other hand, you see uh, white segregationists in the South increasingly inflexible 
increasingly unwilling to make any kind of accommodation or compromise at all. The way in which those two forces kind of solidify is basically the story of what happens over the next 10 years. An active and determined civil rights uh, movement on the one hand, going head to head really with a totally implacable and inflexible segregationist opponent. And that battle is the story of the civil rights movement. One of the fascinating things in the book, I thought, was seeing how various forms of resistance in, in various contexts around the world began to, to organise themselves, you know, to find a way to, to resist, and sometimes drew inspiration from, from other forms of, uh, of resistance that were, that were going on. Yeah, so there are all of these kinds of, of connections. So the, the Hungarians, for example, are inspired, what becomes the Hungarian uprising is inspired by events in Poland, by the... Uh, promise of reform in Poland and by the willingness of hundreds of thousands of Poles to take to the streets of Warsaw to defend that uh, reformist agenda from what they fear might be a Soviet invasion. Similarly, in South Africa, you see a lot of uh, connections between what's going on in the anti-apartheid movement there, the protests against the past laws, drawing connections and claiming solidarity with what's going on in, in the United States, in the South. And sometimes they're doing that kind of rhetorically, uh, or to kind of claim a solidarity that might not always be there in reality. But I think often it does represent a genuine sense of people acting, although they're, although they're acting in a particularly local context, they are part of a bigger force, a bigger movement, uh, a force that uh, transcends their own particular circumstances and their own particular nation. How did you manage to give this story colour and particularity and texture when you are dealing with some very, very big political movements. I think that the way that I tried to do that was by finding episodes, moments, events that encapsulated some of those big, complex political and world historical forces, whether that be a protest, whether it be the publication of a, of a book, whether it be a speech, just a way to kind of bring that make that vivid, make that come alive for the, hopefully at least, um, my aim was to make it come alive for the reader. I mean, that's why people like history. That's why people get interested in history, because they can relate to these events, they can relate to people, they can relate to these uh, circumstances that they encounter. And then through that, encounter the, the bigger questions, the bigger political questions, the bigger social questions. And it seemed to me you very much didn't want to just tell the story through the, the actions of, of dead white, mainly European males. No, I wanted to to as much as possible to to bring in, and really not just to bring in, but to, to to make it clear that a lot of the a lot of the events of 1956, a lot of the the forces that emerge in 1956 are are driven by the aspirations, the desires, the skills, the talent, the courage, the bravery, uh, the idealism of ordinary people, of people who find themselves in particular circumstances and have within them the capacity. To make a difference and a willingness to try to make a difference they don't always succeed of course uh, and sometimes they succeed only to a to a to a certain extent i mean one thing you know just to take the Suez crisis as an example right i mean if, if anyone thinks that you know history is made by by white men sitting around you know writing memos i mean the Suez is a great example of how that's just not the case that they're driven by uh, by things totally beyond their control they might often pretend to be in control or pretend to know what they're doing but uh one of the great things about 56 in Britain is that it, is that it, ex it sort of exposes the, uh, the establishment as being nowhere near as competent or, uh, or capable as it like to think it was. It seemed to me that 
when we're when we're discussing the ripples and the ramifications of events, it's hard to think of a more significant moment in the year than the speech that the secret so-called secret speech that Nikita Khrushchev gave in February. It, its knock-on effects seem to be legion. Can you can you say something about what he was doing? And why he was doing it, and and uh, how he kind of let let a genie out of a bottle. Yeah. So people have often said, you know, why did Nikita Khrushchev give the secret speech? It was you know reckless. It was foolhardy. What was he thinking? I think he was thinking several things. Firstly, there was some power politics there. Uh, he felt that uh, the secret speech would, because some of his main rivals within the Politburo were more culpable for the kind of crimes of Stalinism than he was, even though he had plenty of blood on his own hands. He thought it would uh, strengthen his own position. Because he's, he's basically repudiating Stalin and his legacy three years after Stalin's death. Yeah, he's doing that. And he's also doing it because as part of the kind of reforms that were enacted almost immediately after Stalin's death by, uh, by Leverenti Beria, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of political prisoners had been released from the Gulag, returning home, and they were demanding rehabilitation. And the stories about what had happened to them and, and you know, the injustices of this were becoming very widely known. And so the, the Soviet leadership had a problem, which was, you know, they either have to find a way of drawing a line under Stalinism or it's going to catch up with them. Uh, and Khrushchev said something along the lines of, you know, either we're, we're, we, we come out with this now and we draw a line under, under it and, and we, we explain this, or we're going to have to explain it, but we'll be up in court. You know, we'll, you know, we'll be the ones on trial. But he also did it out of a sense of idealism, right? Uh, he is a true believer in, in communism, in Bolshevism. He's wanting to relaunch the Soviet project. Uh, and he believes genuinely that it's got been taken off course by some of the excesses of Stalinism. And he wants to kind of reset it, get it back on course. So the secret speech is an attempt to, to do that, to, to rescue the Soviet project. Uh, and that's why he doesn't go all the way in renouncing Stalinism. He, he doesn't. Uh, he focuses mainly on the communist victims of of the purges, the communist victims of Stalinism. Uh, he doesn't talk much about the, uh, the the hundreds of thousands of people in the Ukraine that were displaced that he was responsible for, for example. He's not interested in a full reckoning with the Stalinist past. He wants it to be a managed reckoning that will enable the Soviet project to go forward from a position of of strength. Of course, he he unleashes these these forces which become. Im- they don't become impossible to control, uh, but they can become extremely difficult to control, particularly in the Eastern Bloc. And the Eastern Bloc leaders, who are all Stalinists, are furious with Khrushchev because they know perfectly well that this is going to cause them really severe problems, which it does. The ramifications of his speech were felt not just in Hungary, which is perhaps the most familiar case, but I hadn't realised also in Poland, where there was profound unrest in 1956. Yes, there's, there's a, a really major uprising in the city of uh, Poznan in uh, in June, kind of a workers' rebellion, which I think uh, somewhere between a quarter and a half of the populations of the city ultimately rise up uh, against the, the communists, go out onto the streets to, to protest. And it's a protest which is crushed very swiftly with the um, application of, uh, of military force, with um, with columns of tanks and airstrikes as well, uh, leave, I think, at least uh, 50 people dead. The driving force of that is, is partly economic discontent, profound economic discontent with uh, low standards of living, workers who've been essentially cheated out of uh, wages that they, they should have deserved, and a kind of frustration with the ec- economic inefficiency and mismanagement of these major industrial plants which are in, in, in Poznan. But also a feeling that the secret speech and uh, attempts at, at uh, sort of reform in the aftermath of the secret speech have given 
workers in Poznan a bit more leverage. And so I guess they're pushing their, ultimately they're pushing their luck a bit, but they're, they're seeking to push back against the, the kind of strictures of the Stalinist state and the, and the, and the, the constraints of that and, and, and uh, to make their protest known. And then in October, there are widespread, protest, uh, widespread demonstrations of support for uh, the new Polish leader, Gomuka, who is uh, seen as a, both a great Polish nationalist, but also a, a, a kind of liberal reform communist. And he unnerves the, the Soviet leaders, who basically threaten to invade. And uh, I mean, Poland comes very close to being invaded by the, the Red Army in the way that Hungary was just a week or two later. One of the differences between the two situations is that the Hungarian leader, uh, Hungarian prime minister, reformist prime minister, who's appointed really in the midst of the protests, um, Imre Nodzs, is unable to either control the situation in the same way that that, uh, the, that Gomuka was, or more pertinently to inspire confidence in the Kremlin that he will be able to restore order. And so rather than kind of wait and see, they get kind of spooked that Hungary is going to fall completely from their, uh, from their orbit, and so they invade. And if the Soviet Union's claim to moral authority was severely compromised by the crushing of the Hungarian rebellion, in the same year... Britain's and France's moral authority was compromised by their actions in, in Suez and in Cyprus and in Algeria. That seemed to be one of the other themes in, in the book, the old order's moral authority under serious challenge. I mean, the Soviet Union's moral authority, I, I, I wouldn't want to overplay the, the, moral, the moral authority that it had uh, in 1956 before this stuff. but Maybe claimed moral authority or, or ability to, to assert moral authority. Yeah, and I think it's ability to inspire a kind of loyalty outside of the Soviet Union, uh, a sense that it that it did potentially stand for something more than just a another kind of great power, uh, that it represented a, a particular set of ideologies that that could be a force for good, which many communists and and communist sympathizers did believe in. That became eroded substantially by uh, the realities of what it. Did in 1956, and that, and that had implications for the for, for communists in the West. You know, the left, the left in the West then had a sort of loss of bearings, didn't it? Kind of brings about a reckoning, really, that um, lots of people leave the Communist Party in Britain, in, in France, in Italy, in, in disgust at events. Communist parties become divided. They already had been a bit divided over the, what their response should be to the secret speech. The response to um, to Hungary. I think really fixes that down, really really brings that to the to a to a to a head. I think it's Peter Fryer, who's the who's the uh, British communist journalist, who's in Hungary writing about this. All his all his reports are basically censored by the British Communist Party, who say he's got it all wrong. The Soviet Union is right to invade because it's crushing a, a right wing counter revolution. Not 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 it's not a workers' revolution. It's a it's a it's a fascist counter revolution, which is basically nonsense. In my, in, my, in my view, I mean, there are some kind of nationalist right-wing elements that, that emerge in Hungary in 1956, but primarily it's, it's driven by reform communists and social democrats. But the Soviet, and so the Soviet Union finds it more difficult to inspire uh, or to act as a, as a kind of beacon of, of, of idealism in the world after 1956. One of the interesting things is that for communists in the West or leftists in, in, in the West, that, that place gets taken by Cuba ultimately in the 1960s and to some degree by, by China by Mao's China. For Britain and for France, I think that their actions in, in 1956, particularly around Suez, I think expose the fact that, that they're no longer able really to act as imperial powers, that the, the, the number's up for empire, although it does take still the best part of another decade for that to fully, fully unwind. But they don't really act anymore. They can't act to the same degree as great, as great powers, particularly Britain, right? I mean, uh, France moves in a more independent direction. 
uh, America, uh, Britain ends up, maybe it's a bit harsh to say tied to the coattails of the United States, but it becomes very much bound up with, with, with US foreign policy. A real desire not to put any, any real distance between Britain and America when it comes to world affairs. So they continue, both Britain and France continue to be influential, but certainly Britain's uh, ambitions to, to be a kind of a, an equal to the United States are, are I think what Sue does is it exposes that, it doesn't cause it. I think Eden, after the event, sort of was rather ruefully acknowledged that it exposed the reality rather than created a new reality. But it, the key is that it exposes it for the whole world to see, particularly Britain's imperial possessions and imperial subjects who now kind of see Britain as effectively, a, a, you know, it's, it's kind of running out of steam. It was interesting to see you, you tracking how public opinion evolved both in the UK and France in response to things like Suez and, and also Algeria. I thought it was an interesting sidelight on, on how things played. I mean, for example, there were a lot of demonstrations in this country against British intervention in, in Suez. Yeah, big demonstrations against, against the war in Egypt. I think part of that is driven by a sense that not just that the intervention in Suez is, is, is wrong, morally wrong, uh, or politically misguided, that it, it's somehow violating the spirit of the United Nations, but also a sense that it's um, enabling the Soviets to get away with what they're doing in, in Hungary. So th- those two things come together to create this kind of outrage, a combination of sympathy for the Hungarians and a kind of outrage at what Britain is uh, is is up to. But I think the key thing with public opinion on Suez is that it's, divide, it's divided. Uh, uh, the country is split. It's not split in easy ways to categorise. I mean, it's not the generational thing necessarily or class thing. It's, it seems to split opinion across all those all of those things. Yet at the same time, you know, once the fighting actually starts, as is often the way, public opinion does sort of rally around a bit. And I think there's also a lot of disappointment with the Americans at the end of it as well. There are many acts of violence in the book. We still live in a world in which there are many acts of violence. What shocked me, I guess, in addition to the acts of violence, is the violent tenor of much of the language which is used in public discourse, but also in, in forms of, of protest by by those who, who sought to maintain segregation in the southern states of the, the United States. Did, did that shock you? Was that something you were already familiar with? Yeah, well, I mean, I've studied the, the civil rights movement in the American South uh, for many years and written about it, so I wasn't, I wasn't so shocked by the the virulence of the racist rhetoric that was used. I mean, I think that there's some of the stuff that goes on around the school desegregation crises, particularly in uh, in Clinton, uh, Tennessee, when John Casper, this uh, this virulent uh, uh, racist, comes down and stirs up all this trouble. I mean, some of that, which combines, I mean, he's an anti-Semite. He's, I mean, he's a kind of a, if you want a, a kind of real villain, he fits that bill perfectly. Some of that stuff was pretty was was pretty shocking even by the kind of the standards of the of the 1950s i think what was more shocking i don't know shocking is quite the word but but, but more seemed to be to me to be really stark was the inability of the eisenhower administration to grasp that and to understand that and eisenhower himself he's on record as being in favor of of, of equal rights he wants an america where people are, he says people, he wants people to be judged on their abilities and to have an equal chance but by his own sort of upbringing, his own personality, his own character, he's sort of temperamentally unable to sympathise with African Americans in the South, but finds it much easier to sympathise with with whites. You know, so he'll say, "Well, you know, segregation's been there for for a generation or more. We shouldn't expect them to be able to change overnight. We need to be patient." 
and I can think of at least one comment that you quote in the course of that he made in the course of the year yeah. about a sweet little white schoolgirl, which which by modern lights is really quite shocking. Yeah, I mean he's uh, you know he, he he has these concerns that integration will lead, particularly school integration, will lead to racial mixing and uh, miscegenation. I mean he's not as he's not as explicit about that as southern segregationists, but it's a, that's a widespread fear across the United States, uh, across uh, across the white opinion that. Uh, causes anxiousness. Well, this, this word mongrelization is a horrible word and it just keeps coming up, doesn't it? It just keeps coming up again and again and again. It does, and it comes up particularly around uh, fears around rock and roll. A lot of the uh, animosity towards rock and roll music is driven by, by, the, by Southern segregationists who see it as animal music, right, jungle music, and see it, uh, they see the popularity of rock and roll amongst both black and white audiences, and they see rock and roll, which fuses together these musical influences, as hugely dangerous. Uh, they believe that it that it's a threat to to segregation, a threat to white supremacy. So Eisenhower is uh, finds it easy to sympathise with Southern whites, to cut them slack, right? To say they need time, we need to be patient. On an emotional and intellectual level, I think he's not able to understand why African Americans are, as he would say, impatient for their rights. So he draws this moral equivalence during those segregation crises between radical segregationists who are stirring up violence and African-Americans who want integration now. And that appalls civil rights groups, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, uh, right to Eisenhower and say, you know, how can you draw this equivalence between us? We're just asking for our constitutional rights as upheld by the Supreme Court in 1954 and the Ku Klux Klan and, and uh, rabid segregationists. And Roy Wilkins, I think, in his memoirs uh, uh, 30 or so years later, says that, you know, Eisenhower was a great general and a fine man, but if he'd... Uh, Fought World War II, the, war, the way he fought for black rights, we'd all be speaking German today. In 1956, South Africa extended the, the much-hated pass laws to, to black women as well as men. And I wondered, would you, would you pick out the protest which happened in August as a kind of proto-example of, of, of women's rights asserting themselves, which perhaps in some other contexts that you, you write about are, 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 not so, um, are not so prominent? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that the... Um it's a very powerful example, example of the political agency of women in the 1950s. I think it's something like 20,000 South African women, uh, uh, black, uh, Indian, um, a few white allies, organised this demonstration, this national demonstration in Pretoria. They, they marched on the parliament building, the union buildings, the, the seat of the South African government, to protest the extension of the past laws. And they're doing it very self-consciously as women. It's a w- women's march. The kind of rhetoric around it is, you know, if you if you tamper with women, you're going to be in real trouble. They also use their gender. They turn that against uh, many uh, of their menfolk who they believe are insufficiently masculine in standing up for their own rights and for the rights of of, uh, of all South Africans of colour against apartheid. And this women's march doesn't come from nowhere, right? It, it's, it draws out of local protests, local movements, at which in which South African women are play a central role. And what's really interesting is the parallel with what's going on in the American South at the same time. If you look at the Montgomery bus boycott, not only is that protest sparked by a single act of defiance by one of the most famous African-American women of all time, Rosa Parks, it's also organised essentially by um, black women, by the Women's Political Council, and it relies heavily on the support of black women to keep it going. They often do a lot of the hard work of organising the day-to-day operation of the boycott stuff that's not very glamorous, that goes on behind the scenes. But without their contribution, there wouldn't have been a Montgomery bus boycott. 
I wanted to ask you, Simon, finally, if we could be sort of translated back to the 31st of December 1956 with our sort of modern sensibilities and attitudes, would we think what a dismal year that was or would we think there are lots of signs of hope, there are things, something is something is afoot? And part of me thinks we'd just be exhausted at everything that had happened, right? It just it sort of, you know, how, how on earth would you make sense of that, of that year if you'd lived through all of those events? I think it would depend where you were in the world. I think that if you were in Montgomery, where the bus boycotts finally, after more than 380 days, more than a year of struggle, has achieved uh, some significant progress, I think you would have some hopes for the future. I think you'd be hopeful that this was a that this was the beginning of a of a new chapter in, in, in race relations in the South. I think that if you were in, in Hungary and you'd supported the revolution, I think that you would be you would have a very different take on that. That you'd see the year as having failed. That those hopes have uh, would have been would have been crushed at least for now. And I think it would be very hard to know. I mean, as it happens in Hungary, I mean things don't turn out as bad as, as people did think they would. They would happiest barracks in Eastern Europe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, still a barracks, but you know, standard living uh, much better than elsewhere in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, much more degree of individual freedom. So long as you didn't mention the. The events of 1956, you were cut a fair degree of, of slack. And within a year or two of the revolution, I mean, Hungarians have a lot more freedom to travel, to travel outside of the Eastern Bloc. So in some ways, that pessimism uh, would not have been fully justified in, uh, at the end of 1956. So, but I think it would depend on where you, st- on where, on where, on where, you, on whereabouts in the world you were. I mean, in Cuba, right? If you were, a, if you had arrived in Cuba with Fidel Castro on the on the grammar and you'd survive that farcical. A disastrous few uh, few days of the uh, attempted revolution, you'd probably think you had no chance of, of winning. A couple of years later, you're in power. And of course, some of the stories whose beginnings you tell in the book take decades to work out in Eastern Europe and South Africa. Uh, yeah, they do. And um, one of the things that 56 does is it draws a line under certain historical moments, certain historical forces, and it unleashes new ones, which go on to... Uh, to kind of do their work, right? To, to reshape the world, uh, reshape uh, societies, and to change people's lives. I was talking to Simon Hall about 1956, The World in Revolt, which is published in hardback by Faber in January 2016, and is also available as an e-book. For more information about the book, visit faber.co.uk. On the Faber channels on Vimeo and YouTube, you'll also be able to find a short video of Simon talking about writing the book. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can explore the whole podcast archive on SoundCloud that now amounts to over 100 hours of interviews. Just search for Faber Books SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.